0: Oh, it is always a pleasure to be here. It is always a great joy for me to look out and see everybody. And um, I have a little bit of a longer sermon today, I think. But seeing the snow, we'll see if it stays that way. But it is December, if you can believe it or not. And in my opinion, the only good thing about December is that it's one month closer to July which is summer, in case you were wondering. But with December, that means the Christmas season is officially here, and Advent actually began last Sunday. And my goal here is to take kind of a bird's-eye view of what Advent is and um, what it means, and our world rejects Advent when it comes to Jesus, but they love it when it comes to the Christmas holiday. The world loves Christmas, but they don't love it for the right reasons. Uh, I worked at uh, Cost Plus World Market for a couple years, a few years back, and every Christmas it was, I mean, that was the place to be for Christmas if you weren't in Leavenworth, but every year we would get boxes of Advent calendars of all different kinds. I mean, there, there were those 199 Advent calendars with just the little terrible chocolates in it that everybody loves. But there were also Advent calendars that were like $49.99 because they had actual things inside. And, and they would go in a week. I mean, we, we would be down to the bare minimum after about a week because people love the countdown to Christmas. But I think they like more the countdown to their family celebrations or to the food or for presents or for Santa or whatever it might be. But the definition of Advent is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And by this definition, Advent does not come. Only once a year leading up to Christmas, but our entire lives as Christians should serve as an advent because we are awaiting the arrival of a notable person who is Jesus Christ, who is coming again, his second coming. And part of this kind of overview that we're going to do today is to look at both the first advent, the first coming of Christ that we celebrate here at the Christmas time, but also looking to the second advent of the second coming of Christ that we are still awaiting to this day. There are similarities and there are differences between those, but before we do, let's bow and ask the Lord to bless this time that we have this morning. Father, we have entered into a season where the world keeps the name of Christ in the celebration, but seeks to push the person of Christ as far away from it as they can. This time of year can be so joyous and wonderful for many, but can also be very hard and burdensome to others. Father, I pray that as we look at the coming of Christ this morning, that you would point our hearts and set them on the true meaning of Advent, that this is a time to declare Christ's coming to the world, To bring a message of warning for those who don't listen, but a message of great peace and joy to those who do. I pray that you would keep me from error this morning, that I would decrease and Christ increase. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we are going to be looking at four things this morning. Some of them we're going to take a little bit more time in, and some of them not so much. But we're going to be looking at the identity of the person of Advent, the events surrounding Advent, the expectations surrounding Advent, and the outcomes of Advent. So the first of these, identity. This is the one who is arriving, the one that we are awaiting. And for us, we know who this is, of course. For both the first Advent and the second Advent, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, as we sit here and as we go about our daily lives, we are awaiting the arrival of Christ and his second coming. We are in a constant state of Advent. In fact, the song that we will be singing here in just a few moments is the worship song, Joy to the World. And while that song, the verses do fit with the first advent, I think that there is a good uh, argument, and I would tend to follow this, that it's written more so for the second advent, especially when we get to the often omitted third verse, which we will be singing this morning. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. And even the last verse, that, of course, Christ was ruler, Savior, Lord, and King at his, verse, at his first advent, we know that Christ is right now upon his throne at the right hand of the Father. And when he comes again, earth will re- receive her King. The Savior will reign forever, and all nations will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. But the thing about the first coming that doesn't go along with the second coming is the Bible is clear that at his second coming, all will see him. All will know who he is. It will be undeniable. At his first coming, there were few who knew him. And this continued through his earthly life. John 1, 9-13 says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Trapp writes this, The little world knew not Christ, for God had hid him under the carpenter's son. His glory was inward. His kingdom came not by observation. And Christ's identity is still hidden today from those who do not believe, from those who reject him, from those who do not believe in the gospel that is preached. Even those who claim to believe in the coming Messiah or who believe in a Savior have no identity of who this Savior actually is. The Jews, for example, are still waiting for their Messiah to come. And it has actually taken a toll upon the Jewish religion as a whole. Many Jews have actually slipped into a state of apostasy from the classical and traditional Jewish religion. I was listening to a debate between uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who is a charismatic Jewish convert to Christianity, and he was debating and talking to an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And the rabbi described God as an idea. He doesn't have to be an idea, but for some he is an idea, but for some he could be the person of the Father. But a Jewish rabbi described God as simply an idea, not a sovereign and all-powerful person. But Ben Shapiro believes in an actual God, but the Messiah to him is the classical Jewish interpretation and belief of the Messiah, being a powerful political figure who rides in to rescue the Jews out of political oppression and uh, tribulation. And the Bible is the one who identifies Christ as this Messiah, and I would argue that it's undeniable. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign: Behold, a virgin, virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We look at Matthew 1: 21 and 23, it says, "And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, not political oppression. Not, now all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, which being interpreted is God, God with us. So we have the Old Testament that the Jews believe pointing to the New Testament, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We compare this to Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." We also see his identity as the Messiah in passages like Zechariah 9.9, which talks of the triumphant entry of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And then Psalm 22 is a very messianic psalm, and of course Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant and the details of crucifixion. The identity of the Messiah as Jesus Christ is clear and without any doubt. When we know and when we study the scriptures, it is undeniable and there is no reason for anybody to reject him as Messiah unless their hearts are hard and their eyes are veiled. And those who try and get around it and critique or discredit this, they do so in vain. It is Christ whom we are anticipating the arrival of now in the second advent. And on December 25th, we reflect upon his first coming But ultimately, that first coming should point us and cause us to anticipate his second coming as well. The events that surround the first coming and the second coming, like the identity, there are similarities between the first and second coming, but there are differences as well. In both, there is an emphasis on darkness and silence. So let's go to the passage that we read just a few moments ago, Isaiah chapter 9. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. There is an emphasis on darkness. And I love this passage, and I love it for many reasons, But the main reason is how it illustrates where we all have been, the application, and where the world currently is. And that is darkness, utter darkness. Now we need to address the direct context here as well. The gloom comes from Isaiah 8, where Isaiah warns of the coming invasion by the Assyrians, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The invasion of the Assyrians would be horrible to the Jewish people, especially those in the northern parts, which is Zebulun and Naphtali. And Isaiah tells us this. Those regions are just west of the Sea of Galilee, and the land has been lightly esteemed, will come with a special blessing. The north was driven into such darkness by the Assyrians when we see, and then we see that much of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, takes place in the northern parts around the Sea of Galilee. They did certainly see a great light and were greatly blessed by his ministry and his coming. And of course, our world right now is filled with darkness. We are filled with darkness. But God, in those wonderful words that we see, sent his Son into the world the light of the world. And as we read in John 1, the passage, those who believe in Christ have the right to become children of God. They're given a new heart. They're adopted into the family of God. They're made new creatures. So there is darkness from our own sin. There is darkness in the world around us. And evil surrounds us on all sides. And there seems to be an increase of darkness before the first coming of of Christ. And I think the Bible seems to paint this picture that the, of the world that we live in now. These end times, the days before this second coming of Christ, the world will continue to be surrounded by darkness. If we remember, the evil King Herod ordered that the babies that were age two and under were to be killed because he was threatened by the coming king. What can we compare this to today? Killing babies is not new. There is no benefit from it. It has always been and will always be a gross and evil act of selfishness. But it's not surprising to any of us. It was happening then. It's happening now. And it's easy to get lost in that darkness. It's easy to see this world that is so engulfed in sin. But just as the first advent brought light, so does the second. We have a greater hope. We have scripture. We have actually read how everything ends. We can have some disagreements, of course, on the exact details in our interpretation of, say, the book of Revelation and the different millennial positions, but one thing we can all agree on is that Christ wins, that God wins, that the gospel wins, and the finality of this comes with that second coming, that Christ must rule until all of his enemies are put under his feet as a footstool, and the last enemy to be defeated is death. Along with darkness, there's also an emphasis on silence. There are about 400 years of silence between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. 400 years of silence from God, 400 years where there is no prophet at that time. God was not giving special revelation. And it's interesting to me That of the events that we read about, the first advent of God, the first work he does in speaking a new revelation or a continuing revelation, the act that broke the silence of God was actually more silence. If you turn to the book of Luke, we're going to see this in chapter 1 starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, "'How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years.' And the angel answered him, "'I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news.' And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. It so it's interesting to me that God broke this silence between Old and New Testament with more silence. But the people knew what that silence meant. They knew God had spoken. God spoke to his people in silence. We also had the sign of the star. But this was known because of the scriptures. The wise men saw the star and followed it. Now... There are several ideas about the theory and the ideas of the star. I tend to think it was a supernatural event. But the fact of the matter is that there was a star, and the wise men knew to look for it. Now, how did they know to look for it? These magi were from Persia. How would they know of the Jewish Messiah? Probably because they were familiar with the Jewish writings due to the captivity, and they studied the scriptures. They would have been familiar with, say, Numbers 24, 17, which specifically mentions the star that comes from Jacob as well as Daniel's prophecies. But they looked at the events, and they were guided. And We talked a little bit in Sunday school this morning that Herod, being a Jewish king, had to actually call people to interpret and to find out where and when the Messiah would be born— And it's kind of like if these wise men from a different part who didn't believe in the Jewish religion came and were able to tell him, it's kind of like an atheist knowing more about your faith than you do. So there's a call for us to be diligent in our reading of Scripture and our studying of it. So how about the second advent and the signs that come with that? Well, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll start in verse 13. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the time, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Our job as we await the second advent, as we await Christ's coming, is it to sell all of our possessions and lock ourselves in our basement waiting for Armageddon and the world to end? I don't think so. Our job is to be ready. Our job is to be active. Our job is to be fruitful and useful to the kingdom to have our oil lamps filled with plenty of oil to invest much into what God has given to us because the time is coming. It isn't our job to predict when that will be. We've seen plenty of those embarrassing end times prophecies that result in different things like the Mormon Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses Church or the hyper-dispensationalists guessing who the Antichrist is going to be. And once that falls through, they pick somebody else like Henry Kissinger and they go from there. But we are to be ready because Christ is coming again and it could be at any time. And when the Master comes back, are we going to heed the instructions of Jesus that he gives us to be awake and prepared? And when we stand before God, will we hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Be ready. Now, The expectations of the second coming and the first advent, I'm going to move fairly quickly through these uh, to wind down here. And in the coming weeks, uh, Pastor Fisher is going to elaborate and expand on some of these things as well. But as I've stated already, the Jewish people were expecting a conquering king as their Messiah. And ultimately, that is what they are getting when the Messiah comes. Because at the second coming of Christ, he will be that conquering king, that ruler who puts the nations under his feet and who will judge the quick and the dead. Their problem is their rejection of him now. To push aside what the scriptures say about Christ, and to reject what is so clear. For those who continue to reject Christ, they shall be the ones who are put under the feet of Christ. But for those who call upon the name of the Lord as Savior, for those who believe in him, repent of their sins, and are given a new heart and trust in him alone, that day will be the most glorious day. And any expectations we have will never hit the mark. The words to the famous song, I Can Only Imagine, I think puts it quite well. It says, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. There is no greater day for the one who puts their trust in Christ, Whether we breathe our last breath on this earth and we wake up in the presence of our Savior, or He comes again and ushers us to the table for the marriage supper of the Lamb, what a glorious and wonderful day that will be. And this is what Advent points us to. Christ taking on human flesh and entering into His creation to live a perfect life and to die the death that you and I deserve, to take our place, to take sin upon Himself, And the wrath of God so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled and redeemed to the Father. The first advent, this was not the expectation. The Messiah dying, not just dying, but dying a criminal's death on a cross, a cursed death. But that death was necessary and the death did not hold him, but he rose again. And he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and thus begins the second advent as we await his coming again. And he is coming again. And the expectation that we see in Scripture is judgment. As I said, the most terrible day for those who reject Christ is this day. But the most glorious are for those who receive him. And I must admit, I do have a hard time with this, um, because I think of all my own sin. I think of all the horrible things that I have done in my life, And I think, there's no way. I don't deserve such a wonderful day. And of course, the truth is, no, I don't deserve that. Neither do you. None of us do. But hear this. If you are in Christ, there is nothing to fear on that last day. God's promises are sure. R.C. Sproul says, No true believer ever loses his salvation. To be sure, Christians fall at times, seriously and radically. But never fully and finally. We persevere not because of our own strength, but because of God's grace that preserves us. If we rely on our own work to be saved, we will never achieve it. We can't. If we rely on our own works to keep our salvation, we would lose it instantly. We rest in the promises of God. And of course, the outcomes of Advent. The outcome of the first advent was exactly what happened and what was intended. Christ taking on the sins of the world. He was born so that he could die. It's an interesting concept for us to think about. We cherish perfection and beauty so much in our culture that the one who was perfect was born to die, to take on that. But the focus is on beauty. If something in our world, and our culture, if something isn't right, We change it instantly. There are people that constantly get plastic surgery because they're not content with the look that they have. There there are babies who are born with deformities or disabilities. And in ancient days, many of these babies would be taken out to be killed by the elements. They would be left. And today, we also kill them. Many, uh, I think it's Iceland who has essentially bragged about the fact that They don't have many disabilities in there because they have pushed it so much that if a baby, if we see that on an ultrasound, you abort it. So deformities and disabilities are seen as issues. Yet, in the ancient days, back in the times of the Jews, if a lamb was born and it had no spot or wrinkle or blemish on it, Chances are that lamb was put aside because it would be raised to be a sacrifice because that's what God required in the law. It's interesting, the most beautiful thing was put aside to be killed. There was care in choosing this lamb, and there was real sacrifice when this choice was made. And Of course, we have Christ as the spotless lamb, the only sinless one, the only acceptable sacrifice before the Father for the sins of the world. And that outcome of this was the salvation for us. For us now, as we await Christ's return, the outcome is different. Salvation has been achieved. The outcome of the second advent is no more sin, no more sorrow, no more, no more pain, no more hurt, no more cancer, no more death, no more curse, but restoration, peace perfect satisfaction in Christ, and it will never end. And it's hard for us to picture this. Try it sometimes. Try and picture eternity. You can't do it. It's beyond our ability. And for those in Christ this morning, when we stand before the throne of God, our sins cast away as far as the east is from the west, this is when our lives truly begin. This is what Christmas is really about. And there's nothing wrong with the traditional Christmas stuff. The tree, the baking of cookies, the singing of carols, the giving and receiving gifts, and so on. Just as long as those things don't pull us away from the why. In the words of Paul, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And when I think about the true meaning of Christmas, and we throw that phrase around a lot, people say the true meaning of Christmas is... Be grateful and thankful and all that. And of course there's truth in that. We are to be grateful and thankful as Christians. But the true meaning of Christian or of Christmas is recognizing who Christ is and what he has done. And one of my favorite pictures of this is actually from a cartoon. If you turn on, if you ever watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special that used to go on every single year, you know, Linus, he's got his blanket. In every scene you see Linus with his blanket. And if Linus ever loses his blanket, the world falls down around him. It's his security, it's his safety. And each and every one of us, I think, has a security blanket of some kind, something that we reach for, or we grasp onto when things get hard or when we get scared of the world and all that. But Charlie Brown asks, what is Christmas about? And Linus gets up there and he says, this is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And he begins to tell the story of the Christmas story the shepherds in the field, and he gets the one phrase when the angels come. He says, fear not. That's what Christmas is about. And when he says, fear not, he lifts up his hands and he drops the blanket. He lets go of his security. He finds it in Christ. And church, that is where we find our security today. That is where we find our hope in this Christmas season and leading up to when Christ comes again. We all have things to hold on to, and I would challenge you, hold on to Christ. Let Him be your security. Let Him be your hope. Let Him be that blanket that covers you when the days are dark and the world is silent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this time of year, as we've talked about, can be difficult for some and I am included in that group. This is not an easy time of year for me. In fact, this is often a very depressing time of year for me. But Lord, I find when I get the most depressed or the most insecure is when I take my focus off of you, when I take my eyes off of the manger, when I step away from the shadow of the cross, when I look to my own works or the or the promises of some mere mortal men to fix the world around me. But Father, we know that it is you and you only who can make the world right. It is you and you only who will come again. And true justice will be served in that day. And Father, we await this day. We expect this day. And Lord, make us useful to you as we wait. Would you sanctify us by your Spirit that we may go about our lives not lazy and not just waiting in vain, but, Lord, to be active, to be proclaiming the gospel to those who need it the most, Lord, to those who are lost, to those who are left in darkness. Father, make us useful. Father, as we continue to worship today, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we sing this wonderful and glorious song, Joy to the World. Would you fill us with joy, Would you fill us with that blessed hope and expectation that you are coming again and we will be with you forever. We ask these things in Christ's name.